Good evening. Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. Those of you who are coming in, please come in and have a seat and we'll get started. I welcome all of you to Socrates in the City, uh, especially if you've never been to one of these before. Like me, I've never been to one of these before either. I'm, uh, my name is Scott Sherman and I'm the guest host tonight. I'm guest hosting because I do something kind of like this in San Francisco, where I am a pastor. Uh, San Francisco, for those of you who don't know, it's if you remember the old New Yorker map, it's kind of just beyond Brooklyn. It's a little town over there. Um, but uh, Eric Metaxas and David Batstone, our guests tonight, were recently out in San Francisco talking about these important books. And we, I have the privilege of being your guest host tonight as well. Socrates in the City is linked to one of the great questions of Socrates, which is uh, one of the, the uh, key idea, which is that the examined life is the only life worth living. Tonight, we want to push that idea of the examined life or the good life and ask the question, is an examined life a life that leads to action? Action particularly in the area of justice. Our guests tonight have written about a particular question of justice, that of human slavery. Eric has written a biography of William Wilberforce. Dave Batstone has written a book chronicling human trafficking in the world today. Now, let me tell you what you should expect. In just a few minutes, um, we're going to have um, Eric Metaxas come out first. And just sort of imagine this is um, the Merv Griffin show. I'm Merv in his later expanded years. And um, Eric will come out. We're going to have an onstage conversation. And after we've talked about his book, he's going to, you know, like Jamie Farr, he's just going to kind of move down. And then, uh, and then Dave Batstone will come out. And after we've had our conversation, we open it up for you for your questions and answers. Um, and there are microphones on either side where you can come and ask a question. As well, there's a book signing that follows right after. The books are for sale right over here, and when all this is over, we'll talk to you about how you can get a book and how you can get it signed to meet the authors. Now, let me, without further ado, tell you about our guest tonight. Eric Metaxas is the host, ordinarily, except for tonight, of Socrates in the City, and he's wonderful. I feel the pressure, but for two reasons. One, Eric is funny, and he has hair. <laughs> um, but uh, Eric, Eric is the author of um, everything you always want to know about God, but we're afraid to ask. He's written over thirty children's books. He's written for Veggie Tales, uh, Rabbit Ears Radio. Some of you remember that. His writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times. Uh, tonight, he's here to talk about his book, Amazing Grace, a biography of the legendary abolitionist William Wilberforce. This is the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British uh, slave trade. The story tells, uh, like the movie, Amazing Grace, some of you perhaps have seen the movie, tells the story of Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade, but it also goes further to talk about the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Our second guest is Dave Batstone, who also lives in that little town west of here, San Francisco, where he's a professor of ethics at the University of San Francisco. 
He's the author of Saving the Corporate Soul and Who Knows, Maybe Your Own, which won the Nautilus Award for Best Business Book in 2004. He's the editor of the business magazine Motto and co-founder of the magazine Business 2.0. If you get the weekend, uh, the USA Today weekend edition, uh, you'll know David as the weekend edition uh, columnist, America's Ethics Guru. For the last six years, uh, Guru David has uh, headed up um, has uh, headed up a, a journal called Sojourners Magazine. His editor, he's just laid that down in order to conduct the Not for Sale campaign, which is an attempt to rally people behind the cause of ending human trafficking. You'll hear more about that when he comes out. Let's get started. Would you please welcome Eric Metaxas. How does it feel to not be in charge and just be here selling books? I'm in charge. Oh, sorry. Oops. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get that memo. Sorry. <laughs> Hey, um, I'm going to start this off, and you may be in charge, and I may be unzipped. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's, it's a family speaker series. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you may be in charge, Eric. No, but, I was, I was um, kidding. I want to start this out scolding you a little bit because you – I we've had a lot of conversations, and in fair disclosure, Eric and I have known each other for about 15 years, and we're friends. Um, but – in several of our conversations, you, I hear you talking to other people, and you, your caveat is, well, I'm not a historian. I'm not a trained historian. Um, and you're not permitted to do I am in charge enough to say you're not permitted to do that tonight. I can't say that I'm not an historian? No. Can I say that you're not a gentleman or a scholar? <laughs> you can. You can. Uh, but what I mean by this is one of the things I really love about this book is it's well-researched. It's respectable, but unlike a lot of historians, you tell a really good story, and your passion and the style are just woven all through it, and it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the book. And I, I, I kind of want to ask you, why, why did you write it? You're obviously passionate about the topic. Uh, I didn't know you were going to ask that. I'm really not prepared. Um, <clears throat> uh, wow. Give me some time. All right, let's let's skip that one. <laughs> no, I wrote it. I wrote it. Um, it's it's hard to explain exactly why I wrote it. Uh, Wil- William Wilberforce. Uh, I hope most of you know a little bit of who he is. He's just been a hero of mine for a number of years. I never thought I would write a biography of anyone, much less uh, Wilberforce. And uh, but when the folks who made this movie were making the movie, I think they realized that suddenly a lot of people who'd never heard of Wilberforce would see the movie and then want to know more about Wilberforce. And there wasn't really very much out there that they could recommend. There wasn't sort of a definitive book, particularly for American audiences, that they um, could recommend. There were a number of good British books, but as I never tire of saying, the British spell certain words incorrectly. (laughs) And that hangs people up. Uh, so they wanted a they wanted a book that did not do that, 
And um, had a different program. Yeah, yeah. You know, honor uh, has no U. Yeah. And um, program has one. I just, uh, I just knew that uh, I could spell those words. Uh, and but 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 how they came to me is is, is a long story. I'd like to think uh, it's because they knew that I could pull it off. But uh, I didn't, I have to say. So when they, they came to me and said, would you like to write a biography of William Wilberforce, they'd gone to HarperCollins, uh, whom they had a previous relationship with on previous movies, and said, can you find somebody? So HarperCollins found me. And it was, I was stunned because I, I thought, yes, I would like to write a biography of Wilberforce, but I had never thought that I would be given the opportunity. So it was really uh, not so easy to say yes, had to really think about it. But um, I, I knew almost immediately that it was something that I would really sink my teeth into it was a grand opportunity to write about one of the greatest men who has ever lived as far as I'm concerned and I, uh, I seized it and uh, <clears throat> I survived but it was not easy to do it was a lot of work in a very short period of time so you talk about him as one of the most important people who ever lived but my guess is that most people here knew ne- if they've seen the movie or read your book they know a lot about him but short of that they either not heard of him or know next to nothing about him and my next question is, what did he do? And I'm, I'm a, you're really good off the cuff, but I'd love for you to read something. Uh, this is your description in the introduction of what it is Wilberforce did and why he matters. Would you read this? We did not plan this. Yeah, right. Uh, what, to fathom. The, the, to fathom the yeah, magnitude. Whole paragraph. There are no big words. Just. Go. I guess I have to, right? Um, okay, this is from the introduction uh, to my book. To fathom the magnitude of what Wilberforce did, we have to see that the disease, in quotes, that the disease he vanquished forever was actually neither the slave trade nor slavery. Slavery still exists around the world today in such measure as we can hardly fathom. What Wilberforce vanquished was something even worse than slavery, something that was much more fundamental and can hardly be seen from where we stand today. He vanquished the very mindset that made slavery acceptable and allowed it to survive and thrive for millennia. He destroyed an entire way of seeing the world, one that had held sway from the beginning of history, and he replaced it with another way of seeing the world. Included in the old way of seeing things was the idea that the evil of slavery was good. Wilberforce murdered that old way of seeing things, and so the idea that slavery was good died along with it. Even though slavery continues to exist here and there, the idea that it is good is dead. The idea that it is inextricably intertwined with human civilization and part of the way things are supposed to be and economically necessarily and morally defensible is gone because the entire mindset that supported it is gone. That's magnificent. Who wrote that? (laughs) um, Actually, I found myself editing it just then. It's very disturbing. Now, if you remember what he just read, uh, well, when, you know, he murdered this idea. Slavery, anybody for it? I mean, that's over, right? Nobody's for slavery anymore. And that's directly attributable to Wilberforce. One of the things I loved about the book is you introduce us to characters that we know who were, who didn't know the idea had been murdered. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, there, there were a number of very respectable people 
who were very supportive. Well, of I mean, slavery. the idea that slavery was good had not been murdered until those people finally caught up with it. I mean, it's an interesting thing, but, but I didn't plan to have a thesis for the book. I planned it just to sort of chronologically tell the story of William Wilberforce and uh, the abolitionist movement culminating uh, in the 1807 abolition, which we're celebrating this year, bicentennial. But as I was writing uh, the story, it became clearer and clearer to me what I say there is that the only way, I mean, I had to be honest. I think it's very easy for us to be uh, morally, um, to, to play the game of moral superiority, that we're wonderful because we would never countenance slavery. Oh, my goodness, you know, we're so... Uh, advanced and evolved, you know, we would never ever uh, say that it's okay, but I thought, wait a second, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, uh, I believe in original sin, and I believe that I'm no better than anyone who's ever lived, um, so how is it that we all today uh, find ourselves saying that that's wrong? It's not because we're, we're better than the people who thought that it was right. What was it that happened? And... Um, I realized that uh, there were many, I actually said, well, what would the defenses be for slavery? If you lived in that day, what would the argument be? You know, what would, what would people be saying? And you realize that slavery was the kind of thing that had existed since the beginning of time. Human beings, the default mode for human beings is to oppress other human beings. You don't take your power and money and gifts and use them to bless people. Human beings have not done that traditionally. And yes, I mean you. Uh, you guys, not you guys. Okay. Um, saying, not judging, but uh, but you're back. Um, so basically, I thought, why is it that at one point something changed? And, and frankly, it's this: even though um, you know the, the biblical ideas had been around for let's say three thousand years, uh, frankly, they had not taken hold in any culture. They'd always been in little pockets. So Wilberforce uh, has this very dramatic conversion experience in his mid-twenties, and he suddenly sees the world totally differently than everyone in his culture sees it. I mean, the people in his culture, in British culture in the late 18th century, had a very pagan worldview. I mean, they call themselves a Christian country, but when it came to uh, racism, oppressing other people, not helping the poor, wh whatever it is, there was really no argument. Everyone agreed that the poor can go to hell and stay poor, and if I have money, it's because I'm wonderful and God wants me to have money. I mean, the whole everything that we take for granted today about social justice and everything was frankly uh, only to be found among really serious Christians, people we would today call evangelicals or fundamentalists or something like that. Most other people were just entirely content to continue living as they had lived, and slavery was just part of the landscape for thousands of years. I mean, it wasn't invented by bad white people 400 years ago. No, no. And, and Wilberforce comes into the situation and he's faced with an entire world that thinks that way and there were a handful of people that didn't think that way. And he spent the rest of his life, in effect, trying to convince a Christian nation, which was actually not Christian, that they needed to be, they needed to understand what they professed and how they were actually living. And, I mean, he, he spent his, his whole life doing it. It wasn't people. just with slavery. But uh, Boswell, wasn't he a critic? Ba ba yeah, wonderful Boswell, who attached himself to, uh, to Dr. Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, yeah uh, like a lamprey, I believe. Um, <laughs> he, a good lamprey. Uh, but he, he, um, he initially, he was at the actual meeting when Wilberforce was thought to have decided, yes, I'll take on this, the battle for abolition in Parliament. Boswell was there, sort of like, you know, part of the... Part of the the evening, 
a number of years later, Boswell, I don't know if he was offended by Wilberforce's Christianity or, or what it was, but he was firmly pro-slavery. And he wrote a very nasty poem, um, funny and nasty, uh, about, about Wilberforce. I mean, he was clearly also, a do, um, forgive me, uh, Lord Nelson, Horatio Nelson, the hero. Of he Trafalgar. Was, of right. Trafalgar. Yeah. Uh, he was completely pro-slavery. And, you know, a lot of people that you'd think of as kind of good guys, I mean, who could think Nelson is not a good guy, unless you're French, but... Um, Stop. But no. the point is that, you know, Nelson, Boswell... They were pro-slavery, anti-Wilberforce. So it's, it gives you a picture that the culture was not exactly... You, you talked about your own faith being part of what attracted you to write this book. Uh, it comes out in the film and in your book that in the same way that Martin Luther King's vision for social justice is deeply wrapped up in his Christian faith, the same is true for Wilberforce. And one of the people who's very influential in his life is John Newton, played powerfully by Albert Finney in the film. Um, but John Newton, talk a little bit about John Newton and his influence on Wilberforce. Right, yeah, if you've seen the movie, uh, Albert Finney plays the role of, um, of John Newton. Uh, in my book, he's played by Rod Steiger. Um, <laughs> I, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. Uh, we try to get Maureen Stapleton, but I, I think she's, she's dead. Um, but you wouldn't know that because it's a book you can't see. Uh, but... Um, no, uh, Albert Finney uh, plays it brilliantly, and John Newton, I mean, the reason the book is titled Amazing Grace, the reason the movie is titled Amazing Grace is because John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he was a, a close friend of, of, of Wilberforce's, but it was that moment when, um, it, it really is, it's one of these moments in history that you realize if it hadn't happened that way, the whole world might be different, but... Uh, Wilberforce had just had this conversion experience, and it was very dramatic and it was very disturbing for him. He lived in a culture in which Christianity, serious Christianity, was seriously frowned upon. I mean, if, if you took your Christianity seriously in late 18th century England and were anything above, like, a, a fishwife or a cobbler, you know, you were not traveling in social circles that would say it was okay. And fishwives and, and cobblers weren't exactly too keen on it either. So um, he was in this difficult spot because he, he was popular, wealthy, uh, very powerful, and he has this conversion, and he thinks, I've got to get out of politics, I've got to leave the whole world that I live in, because they will just laugh me out of, of, of parliament. I can't be a serious Christian. In those days, serious Christians were derided as uh, Methodists or enthusiasts. So he doesn't know what to do. He's, he was described as being melancholy mad. That's a British way of saying he's really depressed and freaked out. And um, <laughs> I prefer melancholy mad. But um, he didn't know what to do. He, the only person he could think of uh, to speak with was John Newton. He'd known John Newton when he was a little boy. That in and of itself is an extraordinary story. I, I get into that in the book. It's beautiful. But the one person he thought maybe can make some sense of this is John Newton, who, who had been a slave trader and then now was a pastor. He'd become a Christian himself. So he speaks with Newton, and Newton says to him rather dramatically, no, do not leave politics. Uh, God will use you in politics. And that was as strange and counterintuitive in the late 18th century as it is today. The idea that somebody would be, you know, God's going to use them in politics. It, you know, politicians were considered uh, in those days to be perhaps even more self-serving than they are in our own era. Uh, people made jokes out of it. It's like lawyer jokes. But he knew that, uh, you know, w w Wilberforce knew that Newton was saying something that was 
true. It took him a while to accept it, but he actually accepted this as a, as a calling. So John Newton, you talk about a pivotal moment in history, a hinge of history, when, when, when you go to somebody looking for advice and they tell you the very thing that you would never dream they would say. Stay in politics. He stays in politics. He works to end the slave trade. He works to end slavery and to do a host of other things that changed the world. And so hats off to John Newton. Yeah. Now, the movie picks up on Newton. It's a great story. Um, what surprised me after reading the book was that the, the movie did not pick up on this character you, I'd never heard of until you wrote about him, Isaac Milner. Oh, I made him up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Milner. He's a composite character. There were you, 40 children, and I didn't know. Where right. Um, you, you describe Isaac Milner as a cross between Stephen Hawking, Dick Cavett, and Andre the Giant. Dick Cavett was going to be you your... You have friend. our attention. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it, uh, actually, uh, it's true. It, it, Milner was... I mean, this is the man who you could say was principally responsible for uh, leading Wilberforce uh, somehow to this conversion experience. Wilberforce was a wonderful guy. You know, he was not, uh, he was not you know, uh, beating people up. And uh, he was a really just a, a, a wonderful guy. But like the fashionable people of his era, he simply didn't think that it was possible for, uh, you know, Christianity or the Bible to be true. Um, he, he was, um, you know, I guess people thought because of the Enlightenment, you know, the, the, whole, the whole idea of it seemed absurd. Like, you know, we've determined that, okay, you know, God is some form of ethereal electricity uh, that, you know, Benjamin Franklin is, you know, putting in jars in Philadelphia. You know, it's just one of these things that uh, we're figuring, it's all scientific, we're figuring it out. Well, you know, he meets this guy, uh, Isaac Milner, and they go on a trip. It was, it was an inadvertent meeting. Uh, Wilberforce wanted to take a trip to the Riviera uh, to, uh, with, with another friend. The other friend couldn't make it. So he bumps into Milner, whom he'd known years before, and they get into this coach, you know, Wilberforce had his, his uh, post chase and they had a, it was two horsepower. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. But um, Wilberforce, yes, it's hilarious. And um, Wilberforce gets in some conversations with this guy. Now, Milner was physically gigantic. They don't know how huge, but bigger than us. He was big. I mean, that he was really, something. he, was, he yeah. was huge. Marian Thornton, uh, my favorite quote, if I can remember it, is that she said he was the largest man it was ever my fate to see in a drawing room. <laughs> Yes, he was big. Uh, drawing rooms like a living room. Um, so he he was um, he was huge. He was the occasion professor of mathematics and physics. Uh, you know, Stephen Hawking and Isaac Newton were occasion professors. It's a lifetime, uh, uh, you know, uh, position. He was pr probably the smartest, or one of the handful of the smartest people on the planet at that time. But he was not geeky. He was not you know nerdy. He was known to be one of the greatest conversationalists of his era. He told these grand comic stories in his Yorkshire. So he, he's a figure, if you made him up in a book, in a novel, people would say, you know, that's too Dickensian, it's too two-dimensional, give me some more character. But he was really like this. He was this super genius. And he has these conversations with Wilberforce uh, over time, and, and he was not, he didn't really care to convert Wilberforce. I don't think that Milner himself was passionate about his faith, but I think that he was theologically clear, that he felt very clear that uh, you know, Christianity was defensible and the Bible was true, whatever. So they had these conversations, and I think it really freaked out Wilberforce because Wilberforce had completely settled that all that stuff. There's no way that you know that crazy stuff could be true. And I think by the end of uh, a number of weeks, he was 
pretty sure that it had to be, and it, it just deeply disturbed him. It was his worst nightmare, because he knew that he would have to change his life, and um, he didn't want to do that. He had a nice life. Hmm. You know, I read a review of the movie that ended with a question. This is uh, from Mick LaSalle, who's a movie critic in our little town of San Francisco, uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle. So he reviews the film, and then he ends his review this way. How could a nation that aspired to civilization, that by 1800 had given the world the Magna Carta and the Glorious Revolution and Shakespeare, Milton, and Wordsworth descend into such heartless barbarity? It seems to me that one of the things that comes through in the book is that people just weren't really attuned to the barbarity of slavery. They liked having their sugar from the West Indies. Makes us wonder about things maybe we're profiting from where there's a lot of suffering because of the lifestyle we want to leave. One of the stories you tell uh, that I think did become public was the story of the Zong, this insurance scam, 132 people thrown overboard to there, there, there are story. certain things that happen. I mean, they're, they're really horrible. I mean, the Imus thing, you, you get certain things that suddenly everybody's focused. And we start talking about it. it it's, it's almost like a clarifying cultural moment. The Zong incident was that times a thousand. I mean, the Zong incident was a horrific, it was a, a waking nightmare. In 1772, a slave ship captain who, because of his own stupidity, had navigated poorly, uh, causing the slaves who were in the hull, in the hold of the ship uh, to die, to get sick and die, because the longer you're in there, it was a feeded, it, it, it was, um, I mean, I talk about this in the book, I don't, I don't want to get into it too much now, but it was, it was a horror. All you have to do is read a first-hand account of what the Middle Passage was like, a suffocating, nightmarish experience, the Middle Passage. Uh, anybody with just a tiny bit of humanity, when you, when you read it, you say, oh, I didn't know. We've got to, we've got to end this. It's just, it's just despicable. And, um, Thousands of people oh, over the years. Oh, it's, 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 yeah, when you read board. about it, you yeah. just, it, it's pretty sobering. You know, we talk about the Holocaust. We talk about, I mean, it seems that human beings have done really terrible things many, many times. And when you read about this, you say, how, how could we have done this? But of course, most Britons didn't know about this. They, this was something that went on. It wasn't like in, in the United States where you would see, uh, in the South, you would see slavery. It was invisible. It was people would go on ships to West Africa and they'd, they'd pick up the, the, their, their human cargo and they'd go. People who lived in Britain never saw this and the economy was booming and it was long story. But the bottom line is that this one slave ship captain... There weren't many black people in Britain. No, no, no. There were very, it, was, it was in the thousands. It was like 14,000 black people in all of, of Great Britain around the 1770s. And so the slaves are, just to clarify, no, so they're, they're mainly in the West Indies? Yeah, in the West Indies and in Africa. No, nobody really sees what's going on. But there was this one moment in 1772, the Zong uh, was, as I say, captained poorly by this uh, slave ship captain. So the slaves start dying in even greater numbers. And you cannot imagine how many people died. I mean, it really is grotesque to read about. I mean, if, if, if I, you know, shoved a hundred cats into a box, it would disturb all of us, uh, as it should. But when you do that to human beings, you don't even want to look there. It's just, it's just a, a nightmare. And this was an example of that. And of course, they always died. And in this case, they were dying in even larger percentages. And the slave ship captain had a, what I think of as a particularly demonic idea. No one had ever thought of this before. His idea was, hmm, 
the insurance will not pay for uh, if I lose any of these slaves. They were maybe worth $4,000 in American money today, okay, in terms of 30 pounds or something like that. I will, if everyone that dies, I lose the money. Uh, and because the captains were rewarded for their efforts. So, uh, if they die, I don't, okay, but if they die in, 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 in certain circumstances, I might be able to get the money. If they die, uh, he, he came up with an idea. He realized that if he throws some of them overboard, if he, if he just throws them overboard and lets them drown in the vast ocean, the insurance will be forced to pay. It's as if he never lost them because he can say something like, well, I had to do that because there wasn't enough water, it hadn't been raining, and, and I had to do this, and it was, it was just something I had to do. Anyway, I, I uh, clarify it in the book. But this uh, captain commanded his crew to take 50 of the sickest slaves and, you know, before they could die, hurry up, grab them, and let's drown them. And they threw them overboard, but they took the shackles off because the shackles were worth a lot of money, right? So they drowned them. And it's just one of these things when you read about that, but that wasn't enough. The second day, uh, you know, I guess he start, said, hey, I used, you know, 50 times 30 pounds, this is pretty good, let's, let's drown another 40. Uh, in three days, 131 human beings were cast overboard to drown. And when this came, the insurance company had to pay this. But they took it to court. They eventually said, wait a second. And they took it to court. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a famous court case. And Judge Mansfield, who was a respected judge, found in favor of the captain of the slave ship. And in his decision, he wrote, it was as, just as if horses had been thrown overboard. That, that was British law in the 1770s. Well, there's a guy, one of my favorite guys, and I talk about him in the book, he's not in the movie, but Granville Sharp, I mean, he went nuts and basically said, we've got to wake up everyone, we've got to tell everybody who we possibly can about this. So he publicized it and publicized it and publicized it, and it was one of the things that it woke people up. It's just a turning point in the movement, and it led eventually to them, uh, a group of Quakers and so on and so forth, to, to say, we've got to find someone in Parliament to champion this cause, and of course they found... William Wilberforce. Yeah, you know, uh, part of what strikes me about this is not just the horror of the story, but that question, are there ways in which we today, uh, living in the United States, living in major centers like San Francisco or New York City, uh, are we like those people who don't think about where the sugar came from? I, I mean, I think that's why, you know, theologically, again, you know, uh, confessing myself to be... Uh, self-proclaimed Christian, uh, theologically, the answer is yes. I mean, God doesn't say, like, you're a really good guy and those are evil bastards. That's not, the God of the Bible doesn't operate that way. So we have to approach the thing with a humility. That would be a controversial verse. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but you can't limit God, man. Um, but I think we have to have a humility and we have to know that, of course, there are any number of things that we're doing and we, we need to, you know, we need to care and we, did, we need to think about it. What would you want somebody to do? I mean, if you were uh, a, a slave in the late 18th century, you know, wouldn't you want the Britons going about their lives to think a little bit more deeply about the, I mean, you know, you, you, you know that, that there's somebody out there hoping that we'll get serious about any number of things. I mean, David Batstone will tell us about one of the most important ones in a couple of minutes, but I mean, there's just no question but about it. One, 
you need to know. And I think that's part of the problem is what we don't know. I, I'm a minister, and even something as simple as uh, serving coffee for people after church is controversial because, you know, in San Francisco, we have better coffee than you. Some people want Pete's, you know, uh, or we do. I lived here for 10 years, better coffee. Uh, but, you know, I want the peats. But then there are people who say, well, yes, but that's not shade grown. You're not thinking about the birds or it's not fair. Tr- you know, and so you hear these voices and it's easy. I'm admitting this. I like peats. I don't care. You know, I mean, at a certain si- there's a certain sense in which it's easy to dismiss people who, you know, prattle on about where the food comes from which I think is probably a good uh, transition to our next guest because... Here's another guest? Yes. Uh, He can actually talk to us, um, frankly, about some real issues that are taking place, not in, you know, the West Indies, but right here, right here down the street from you. Would you please welcome Dave Bathstone? You agree with me about the coffee, don't you? I do, and I'm, I'm just upset that this microphone's had all the jokes used up already. Uh, this, so. <laughs> um, well, Dave's book is uh, Not for Sale, The Return of the Global Slave Trade and How We Can Fight It. This book is, it is very powerful. There are a few books I can say this really changed my life, but... This book opened my eyes to so many things, and I was reading it about the same time uh, when in San Francisco we, there was a major sting operation called Operation Gilded Cage. I'm reading this book at the same time that I'm reading the paper every day about all, all the human trafficking that's happening right in our town. And this, this book changed your life, too. I mean, you were, you were being a guru, still are, a, a business ethics yeah. professor guru, right? Uh, Talk about what happened when you decided to go travel to five continents. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it was a total unexpected um, set of a series of events because I set out to uh, write an investigative piece. I was going to figure out how it is that in the 21st century people are still being bought and sold. How does this happen? Who are they? Who are the people who do the uh, trafficking and who are the victims? Uh, What's the process by which they fall into slavery? And um, how does it you know, reach to 27 million people? So I set out to write an investigative journey. And it started to get in my dream life, got under my skin. It started to affect me in all kinds of ways. And it, it, it truly changed my life. You and I have something else in common. We, uh, we love to spend time in Berkeley. And we love Indian food. And you had a restaurant that you love to go to in Berkeley but you tell the story of what was going on there. You know, it was uh, my favorite restaurant. We try to go every couple of weeks with my wife. And when um, I was there at the table, I, you know, I, the girls that were waiting on the tables, they were young, uh, the ones that were washing the dishes, the hostess that would take you to the table. But it just was not in my grid. It wasn't what I was looking for, to think that maybe they were there against their will, that they were modern slaves. The front page of the San Francisco Chronicle when I woke up one day had a headline, Slaves in San Francisco. And this one restaurant was the center of a trafficking ring for 500 young girls who had been brought over from India 
to work in retail establishments in Northern California. And it, was, it blew my mind. The, the way that it even became discovered was that there was a gas leak in one of the slum apartments where they crammed all these girls. And one of the girls died and others got very ill. The police came and when they started to say, well, you know, where are you from? You know, where's your family? One of the girls was able to say, we need to get out. Help save us. Free us. I said, free you? And so what happened is that they discovered this ring. Um, so that began my curiosity. And I thought still it was far off. It was in my backyard, yes. But it was an Indian restaurant owner. And the girls were all from India. So still it seemed very far out there. Well, paint the picture for us. I mean, I, when I think of slavery, uh, I envision something that is very clear. If you live in the Old South, the slaves are the people picking the cotton, living in the cabins right over there called the slave quarters. Um, you know, Spartacus, the slaves are the people carrying the rocks, yeah. you know, that are being whipped. Uh, you know, it's very, very visible. I mean, who is a slave today? Well, that was a part of uh, that journey. I met very shortly after that Indian restaurant, a mutual friend introduced me to this young woman named Kim Meston. And she was from Massachusetts in the United States. Uh, she uh, had grown up in Tibet. Her family had fled the violence that China had visited on Tibet, made their way to northern India. An evangelical pastor from a small church in Massachusetts, just outside of Worcester, went to northern India, visited this camp, and implored Kim's parents to let this 14-year-old daughter come back with him to the United States so that he could give her an education, a job, she could send money back, the American dream. Kim's parents were reluctant. They didn't know him. He's a pastor, probably trustworthy. Some pastors are. And found yeah. that uh, when he's they begin... Pete's coffee. He, he does drink Pete's <laughs> coffee? Okay. Some... Our trust really. Every other cup. <laughs> exactly. And so um, convinced her parents to let him let their daughter come to the United States. Once she got in the U.S., her passport was taken. She was a slave in an evangelical church. She was also a slave to the pastor in his home who had a wife and a daughter about her age, which was just staggering. And this village around which she lived for five years never suspected a thing. And she ended up living five years in captivity and finally escaped in the middle of the night when she was 19. And it was only when she called back home, she got a hold of her parents and said, you won't believe what happened to me. I got freed from this situation of bondage. It was, oh, it's, it was hell on earth. And they said, oh my gosh, the pastor came back last week to take two of your cousins who are now 14. So that's when she got the courage to go to the police in the small town and say, I have been a slave. She didn't do it before because she would have been identified as an illegal alien. She would have been also someone who would have to go through the media, you know, the, the circus it would be to be a sex slave to a pastor. And so the whole thing, but she eventually did. So there was another case. And I began to look deeper and deeper and I found that in my own country there are as many as 125,000 and perhaps 200,000 slaves in the United States today. It's not the same kind of slavery that Wilberforce fought. It's not state-sponsored, state-sanctioned. It's not a piece of property on a certificate. Typically what it is is that it is physical violence and economic or debt bondage that is used to bring or, or to deceive a young person or a woman. 80% of these uh, individuals are women, half are children, 
and they're put into a situation where they can't leave unless their families are attacked or they themselves individually are attacked. We were chatting backstage. Um, I asked you if you had ever been to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in San Francisco. It's, it's one of the things that may not be on the, the tourist guidebooks, um, but it's in Yerba Buena Gardens, and there's a beautiful waterfall, and it's set up so that you can walk on a little narrow pathway through a reflecting pool, and you walk literally right through the waterfall. It's a roaring waterfall on either side. And just as you're standing by these, you know, the, the rushing water, you see the words of Amos, let justice roll down like waters. And it's a, it's a very powerful piece of public art. Um, I, I was there recently uh, showing some people around town and having already, you know, become part of this and yet again felt that sense of powerlessness. You want justice to roll down like waters. But who are the abolitionists? I mean, who can actually do something about this? You know, that was my, that was my journey because I set out to find out who are the slaves. I had never heard of these abolitionists. I, I had, on the fringes of my awareness, heard of a group called International Justice Mission, IJM. But they were the only one I had heard of. Um, when I was in Thailand as a part of, I went to five continents over a period of a year. And um, in Thailand, I met this young woman. Her name is Kru Nam. I, she probably is 27, 28 years old. She was a painter. She was an artist. And she was going to use her art therapy to help kids who were on the streets of Chiang Mai, which is the second largest city in Thailand. So she'd give this empty canvas and say, paint your story. And then they started painting these stories that, you know, they were horrific. They were out of a bad movie. So she uh, said, where do you get these ideas? And they said, this is our story. We were brought here from Burma. We were brought here from Vietnam. We were brought here from Cambodia. She found out these kids were not from Thailand, most of them. But had, young boys had been brought to be sex slaves and the karaoke clubs that catered to foreign tourists from the United States, from Europe from China, from Japan. And at the age of 10, 11 years old, they had to service maybe 5 to 12 men a night. So she was incensed. You know, she said, I'm going to do something about this. So she ran into these karaoke clubs, and she just see whichever kids weren't being occupied at that time, and she just said, three of them, we are walking out of here. And she grabbed their hands and she walked out. Uh, you know, she, she was just, it was called, you know, it's almost like this righteous sense of rage. And she didn't care what happened. She was going to get them out. And so she got maybe, you know, 15 to 20 kids out of that situation. And then the uh, word got out to the karaoke club owners, listen, if she comes into your club, you know what to do to her. So the word got back to her that she had to be careful. So then she started going to the bus stops and wherever the kids were coming, in from Burma or in from Vietnam or in from these places, she would grab them before. The police would grab them, then take them to the karaoke club for a bounty fee. And then she moved up to the border so she could be closer. Today, Kru Nam is on a piece of land out where the Golden Triangle is, where Laos meets Cambodia meets Thailand. And she has 70 young boys and girls who she has rescued from trafficking within, living in tents. That was, the, that was the day I met Kru Nam. I said, I've got to do something about this. 
There are crew noms out there who are saving kids and they have no support structure. We don't even know they exist. And that's when it began to move from investigative journalism to advocacy. Yeah. I actually want you to read something from your book. Um, you talk about who can be an abolitionist, the, the vocation of being an abolitionist. Um, as a university professor, believe it or not, I have that hat, um, I frequently challenge my students about their obsession with a career beyond college. I tell them that they will be far more fulfilled if they seek a vocation instead. To build a career, they will stitch together jobs into a valuable resume. To build a vocation, they will design and purpose, pursue meaningful endeavors. Those two paths can come together. Sometimes they do not. So how do you find your vocation? You locate where your passion meets the needs of the world. The first part of that equation is to engage yourself in those activities that you feel you were just put on earth to do. The second part of the equation is to carry out those activities so to benefit others. The world is filled with unhappy people who are doing work they do not care about, all for the sake of making money or because they are trying to fulfill someone else's dreams. A new underground railroad is emerging that aims to put an end to human slavery once and for all. It desperately needs reinforcements, a new wave of abolitionists to join in the struggle. Lawyers are needed to protect the rights of victims and prosecute their predators. Business entrepreneurs are needed to launch enterprises for freshly liberated slaves. Students are needed to carry out research and influence policy. Healthcare workers are needed and mental health professionals. Construction workers are needed to build shelters. Employers are needed to offer jobs. Owners of two blankets are needed to donate one. You um, publicly in our meeting in San Francisco challenged uh, our congregation, City Church of San Francisco, to become an abolitionist church. Thank you for yeah, doing that <laughs> I there. Felt, I felt like there was not enough on your... 500 your, people. Yes, exactly. So, I should uh, probably talk to you about it first, huh? Yeah, yeah. oops. <laughs> um, and so now we're, we're joining with uh, some other uh, churches in the Bay Area. I, two things. Talk briefly about how a church can be an abolitionist church. And uh, if it's okay, could you tell a little about your own students? Because you talk about students. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm so thrilled. Uh, on May 20th, um, we're going to have churches all over the, the, uh, uh, the globe who are going to, on that day, say, we will stand with those who are being targeted for trafficking. They are in slavery today. So there will be a celebration. So next weekend in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're going to have a, an early prototype, a model of that. So six of us all getting together, six churches are all coming together into one gathering. An abolitionist church says, we will be a sanctuary. It goes back to this old notion, we will be a safe haven so that a young girl, a young boy who is in trafficking, a woman, a man, will find safety in our church. They will find safety here. They'll be a safe haven. We will be a place that will sing our redemption songs. We have redemption songs. They start in Egypt, in captivity, and they move through the scripture to Nazareth where Jesus says, I've come to bring release to the captives. That's the church's song. It's a redemption song. It's the synagogue song. It's a redemption song. So we will sing our redemption songs. We will be a place that will educate and equip. So part of that educating and equipping for students, you know, I, I gave this, I laid this challenge down to my students. Slavery in New York City, slavery in San Francisco, slavery in Los Angeles, it's invisible. Have you seen it here? It's here. Have you seen it? It's invisible. On the other hand, it's very visible. We don't know where to look or how to find it. So I told my students, the San Francisco police say they can't convict anyone, they can't prosecute trafficking. 
even though San Francisco is one of the five largest ports of entry for trafficking in the United States. But there's no prosecutions. So they began interviewing journalists, police officers, social workers, battered women's shelters. They went out and began to map where slavery could be found in the San Francisco Bay Area. They stumbled on a place that they found through Craigslist, which advertised itself as a massage parlor. New Asian young hot girls every month, new ones. Mm. So they began doing some surveillance work. They got to the point where they needed someone to go in. So myself and, and one of my um, campaigners, we went in posing that we had a bachelor party coming up, which is very common for them. You have a business associate coming out of town. You have a bachelor party. All kinds of reasons men drive the demand. And they said, no worry, we'll bring you four young girls, four young Chinese girls. And I said, well, can I see them? Because I really, you know, I want to make sure you're not going to give me some old girls. They go, oh, yeah, we have young girls. So they brought them out. And these, you know, these young girls, if, if they're 18, don't speak any English at all. They said, well, could they come out to our party? No, they stay here. So my students then set up a 24-hour surveillance on this place. Early in the morning, late at night, the bouncer left. The mommy Sam or the pimp or owner of the place, she left. The girls got locked inside. So we talked to the DA's office. He talked to the police. We set up an, uh, a raid that's going to happen in about five days from now. And where are you going to take these girls? We need shelter. Where better place than institutions like communities like the church, the synagogue. That's why we built this. And then provide them with legal services, social services, so that they're not criminalized. They're not the criminal. The criminals are the people who are trafficking them and are forcing them to do unspeakable things every day, every night, repeated times, time after time after time. So one emphasis can be on the way businesses are uh, benefiting from, yeah. uh, you know, uh, slave labor. But a, a central theme of this book is the sexual appetites of men and how women are exploited by them. That's, you know, it's definitely who drives the demand. Well, and, you, I wanted to ask you very specifically, you talk about, I wanted you to give the example, I think it is in Cambodia? Yeah. Just, just the, the percentage of how many people see a prostitute. And the last thing I wanted to ask was, um, when we, when you think about pornography, which is such a part of culture, you know, mainstream culture here in America, are there people who are part of that industry against their will? Yeah. Well, I, I went to uh, Southeast Asia thinking that it was foreign sex tourists who were driving the demand in large part. They were there, went undercover at many clubs where there were Australians, New Zealanders, Americans, mm -hmm. Brits. But also I discovered another part that it is, it is Cambodian men, Japanese men, Thai men, who are driving it to a majority extent. 70% of Cambodian men will visit a prostitute during the course of a month. Seven out of 10. And it's such a cultural thing. It's, you're starting a new business, you wanna give your partner luck, so you, 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 you give him a young girl for the night. It's uh, you're out with the guys drinking on a, at a pub or a bar on Friday night. Before we go home, let's all go to the brothel. It's just accepted. It's just a, a young a father to his son will say, you know what, you're 17 now. I want to take you to a brothel. So it's just such, it's this demand. And it's a cultural acceptance of that. Yeah. Now, what about pornography, you know, 
quote-unquote mainstream pornography that you see here? Are there people there against their will? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Some, some definitely are and some definitely are not. And, and unfortunately, believe it or not, the attempts to try to actually address the issue of sexual trafficking in the United States are so polarized, are so fractured between those who say, well, some women have a choice, and so to somehow prosecute this takes away their choice. It criminalizes their opportunity to make a desperate living. Who others are saying, no, all women are trafficked, and all women... The truth of the matter is that there's probably both. But these young girls who are in this, four Chinese girls who we're trying to rescue out of this place in San Francisco, they're there against the world. They're being locked in at night. And somehow we have to get over these polarizations to be able to actually provide an avenue of redemption, escape, for those who are trapped in these forms of, of slavery. You told me a story about an organization, I think in the United Kingdom, that has come up with a creative way to open people's eyes to where some of these images well, come from. You know, it's, it's a way to kind of tap into this uh, or get beyond the allure of the seduction. And so this group called Protest 4 in the U.K., has gone to make, um, if you've ever gone to the UK, you go to a pub and they have these coasters that you put your beer on top of. And usually it's the name of a beer or something. But they have this very seductive kind of view of a, of a young girl. And so then when you flip it over, it says, you know, come visit me or something. You flip it over and say, because I have to 12, nights, 12 times a night be visited by someone like you. And it's a living hell for me. It's, it's good. To kind of show that, that what are the consequences, what's the other side of the, the lure of the temptation or the vision or the, you know, it's so seductive and so glossy, but what's behind the gloss? And so, you know, in the kind of pornography that we see, in the kind of sex industry we see, um, it's, it, it's to really wake up. In fact, I'm speaking to a group of men in San Francisco next week who were Johns arrested by the police to say, now, these girls that you're visiting and you're, 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 you're visiting on a regular basis, let me tell you their story. Let me tell you how they got here, many of them. Let me tell you individuals, their story. Now, is that still exciting and stimulating to think that you're driving that demand, their hell? You know. Well, the synergy I'm so enthused about is, uh, in these two books, is with Eric's book, you have a powerful story of how one person who cares about justice can make a difference in community with other people. Uh, it's inspiring. And David's book is just loaded with practical ideas of ways we can become more aware and involved and helpful. Um, I think it's time. I know some of you have questions you want to ask. And so you can make your ways. We have, we have two microphones on either side, this aisle here and over here. Uh, if you have a question for Dave Bathstone or for Eric Metaxas, I would just uh, preface this uh, with two points, and it is uh, please state your question in the form of a question. And notice that I, secondly, notice that I used the singular word question. Just one question, please, if you don't mind. So, um, you're welcome. If you have a question, please come to the microphone and ask. Good evening. Um, I thank you both for coming tonight. It's really inspiring. Um, my question is for Mr. Batson. Um, how do you avoid the image when working abroad 
of um, American white people coming to preach to all the, you know, poor people from these other countries how to run their lives? And how do you make it an internal change within that country? Wilberforce was working within his society. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, that's a very insightful question. And for that reason, in, in any country that we work in and our partners work in is through um, those organizations that have taken up this fight internally. So Khu Nam in Thailand, um, in, in, in Cambodia, an organization that works, they're Cambodian folks who are working against trafficking and, and slavery there in India. So it's, it's supporting those in, internally. This is the thing about our, our abolitionist church movement, too, and, and all the movement we're doing among students, is we're really reaching out to say we want to provide resources, support, and network to, in, to groups that are indigenous to the countries where you're fighting this. Uh, in India, probably the number is 12 to 15 million people are enslaved today. Who's going to lead that fight? It's not going to be a bunch of people from San Francisco and New York. It has to be Indians. And we need to be able to provide the international support uh, in all kinds of ways, legal, financial, spiritual, to try to um, connect our movement to their movement. Thank you. For that. That's a good question. Other questions? Um, you know, we... I was able to interview uh, the special agent from the FBI uh, in charge of human trafficking. And he, he talked about, you know, very common things we can do. Uh, he says, you know, if you have, a, if you have a, somebody across the street, you know, if you live in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, and you notice somebody across the street has a nanny and they never, ever, ever, ever leave the house, find out yeah. why. Although in Greenwich they have very big houses. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, let's see over here to the, the right. You the, just take a quick yeah. the numbers yeah. in the U.S. Fifty percent uh, of those trafficking victims are in the sex industry. Twenty-seven percent, though, are domestic nanny slash servants. Those people who have been brought here get, with some kind of deception or against their will, and they are now enslaved in a home. And then ten percent for construction, ten percent for uh, restaurant and hotel. So. That's kind of the distribution in the U.S. Outside the U.S., the biggest proportion are agricultural slash field workers who are bonded into rice mills or brick kilns into factories. And now, now, those are percentages. What about numbers? Um, well, 27 million worldwide. Um, the biggest proportions are in India, Eastern Europe, and, and in Latin America. Numbers here in the U.S.? In the U.S., it's, it's going to range between up to 200,000. It could be as low as 125. Thousand. It's hard because there's no prosecution. We had 91 cases prosecuted last year in the United States. 91, and we're talking 150, 175,000 people. The Civil Rights Division of the FBI uh, has taken this up, and according to the special agent, it has become the, their third highest priority of, for the FBI at this point. After drugs and weapons? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, here.
I, don't, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, first Thank of you. all, that uh, I think anybody, not, not just Christians, would want to know what the root um, cause is. And I think that the, the difference here, that it was all very clear in Wilberforce's day, uh, the kind of slavery that we're talking about. We're obviously talking about a number of different kinds of, of slavery. Some people would call, wouldn't call some of them slavery. We can quibble and quibble. But the point is that there's all kinds of uh, bondage. There's all kinds of oppression. And I think that the, the roots are different. I mean, I'm fascinated by the, the sexual stuff. Like the whole idea, you hear this and you think, our culture, it's not exactly like Cambodia. But clearly, if you say to somebody, you know, you should think twice about, you know, inviting a stripper to your dorm uh, or frat house, you're thought of as a, you know, a, a moralistic prig. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you say easily in our culture. I mean, I've said before, I think we have an incredibly adolescent attitude towards sexuality. It's really, it's just pathetic. It's so sad. I think that's something that I, I just wish people on the left and the right would, would come together on, on that issue. And I was thrilled when Tipper Gore, any number of years ago, took on the idea of uh, some of the lyrics that were out there. It was great to have somebody on the Democratic side get on that because it always becomes caricatured as a, you know, a church lady kind of thing. It's a Dobson thing. And it's like, of course, how absurd, how ridiculous. But, of course, it was no different than Wilberforce's day. It was the fanatical Christians, you know, the, the crazy Quakers. It was the really crazy Christians that were, that were insane enough to believe that slavery is wrong. I mean, pff, come on. They fought and they fought and they fought. And I think that, you know, if you fight in love, I think that, I mean, um, you have to love your enemies. And if it's all about being a moralist and demonizing other people and, and making it a big moral issue, you lose. Wilberforce didn't do that. He's very gracious to his enemies. And I think it's safe to say that his enemies, you know, slave traders in the 18th century were not, uh, it's not much to quibble about. If there's anybody you can demonize, I would say those would be the guys. But he was gracious to them. And, and I think that that's, in, in fighting these battles, I, the only thing that I can see is we have to take that kind of point of view, is that we cannot frame it stupidly uh, like a culture war. It, what's the culture war? I mean, we all agree, I think. We all, all, I mean, this is, this is Wilberforce's legacy, is that we live in a culture. I mean, I try to explain this in the book. It's such a big idea. But the idea that today, everyone agrees that we should try to help our neighbor and help those who are oppressed and work for social justice. Like, we've, we've come into a world now where most people agree on that. So can't we all say, you know, whether you do it from Christian conviction or you do it from uh, humanist conviction, we all sort of agree that, like, this is bad and this is bad. So let's, let's figure out how to, how to move forward. Wilberforce was fiercely bipartisan when it came to those kinds of issues. And I, I, to me, that's, that's what gets really important um, about this. Anyway, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, Over this here. Is for Mr. Metaxas. Uh, Eric, um, what types of grassroots uh, techniques were used uh, by the abolitionists to kind of, I mean, there was no text messages, and what things did they implement that were innovative and they really got the message out that really allowed their population to kind of make a difference? Yeah. Well, they had, no, they did have, they had very primitive text uh, messaging. Um, very, very few people. Um, I noticed Jim Lane is walking out. BJ, every time you speak, people leave. I'm sorry. Please, come back. Um, basically, uh, <laughs> um, basically, it comes to write about what we're talking about today. It was a people's movement. It was the first time in history that a politician could appeal to the people over the heads of parliament, right? Because we know that 
you know, in the late 18th century, suddenly the voice of the people meant something, and Parliament had, you know, there was movement toward democratization, all this kind of stuff. So basically, Wilberforce and his group, the Clapham sect, and this is a whole other thing, it doesn't, the movie doesn't really go into this, but in the book I, I, I try to get into it because it's, it's just so amazing. It was this amazing group of people, and they all cared about different things, and they all helped each other on different things. And they realized this is a cultural thing, right? You can't just make laws. You have to get the culture to agree. And I think sometimes that's the other thing. is like people get involved in politics thinking you can solve the problem. You, you can't. You've got to get, you know, if, if all Americans thought that it was really wrong to drive 57 miles an hour, you know, you don't really, really need laws, you know. But the point is that you have to get the people on board. And so Wilberforce, uh, he was friends with the, the great English poet Thomas Cooper, and, you know, he wrote some poems and they were set to music, and then they went to Josiah Wedgwood, who created this really famous um, uh, cameo of, of, of a kneeling slave saying, am I not a man and a brother? And it, these were images and songs that I think that, for me, it's about the culture and the media, images on TV, images in movies. That's what moves people, and I think that we have to be more involved in that. And I think, finally, the, the, we were talking earlier about the Middle Passage, um, Thomas Clarkson, who was certainly Wilberforce's equal in the abolitionist movement, he, he saw a diagram of a slave ship that was used. Uh, they, the, I mean, it's so horrifying. Human beings had been crammed so unconscionably that they finally, one of the first things they did was they made an, a law that you can only cram, you know, 480 people in a whatever ton ship or something like that. And even that, well, I, I have a, it's reproduced, um, in the book, actually, so you can look at it. But this was, this was the new legal limit, okay? And even that, any human being looks at it, you're horrified. And this was the new... And he said, let's reproduce this picture and let's put it everywhere. Let's just put it everywhere. So it, it just bloomed all over England and people would look at it and it, you know, takes about five seconds and you just think, oh my God, you know, this is, this is a nightmare. You don't need paragraphs and you don't need oratory necessarily. And so, so I really think that um, just getting the message out there, I mean, how many of us hear stories like this, that, you know, your Indian waitress is a slave? As soon as you start hearing about that, people become interested and involved. So, it's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, however you can do it, um, you know, we have many more means today than, than they did back then. But it really is about getting the message out and not politicizing it, you know. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to, to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so here. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, another question for Mr. Metaxas. Uh, I'm curious because it's, it's clear that Wilberforce came out of the, the Methodists' uh, abhorrence of slavery, and the other um, Christian sects actually supported slavery. Uh, they cited Chris, uh, Old Testament scripture in support of slavery. Uh, I wonder in, when you did the research for the book, did you come across why were the Methodists suddenly uh, anti slavery? Where did this come from suddenly? It wasn't a denominational thing. I mean, my thesis really is that if you're really a Christian, not a pseudo-Christian, not somebody who just goes to church and, and says you're a Christian because you're not a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist, right? If you really pay attention to what the Bible says and you're really trying to have a relationship with God and saying, how am I supposed to behave in my life? I mean, if you take it seriously, then certain things follow from that. In Wilberforce's day, everyone went to church, but nobody went to church, you know. I mean, nobody was actually serious about it. If you took it seriously, you were persona non grata. You were, you know, you were, you were like a, looked down upon. The Methodists were basically the kind of, you know, 
like loony evangelicals of their day. You know, this is like poor people who Whitfield would, would call into a field and, and, and they, would have, uh, they would have this conversion experience. So in, in a nutshell, like the people who were really serious uh, were much less likely to, to get, not always, of course, because John Newton uh, had this Christian conversion and he continued to be a slave ship captain. And that, that's outrageous when you read about that. But I think that points up the fact of how widespread it was. It, it was. it was impossible to think that this was wrong because no one had ever said it was wrong in history. Nobody ever talked about it being wrong. But it was always the people who were very serious about their faith and who took the Old and the New Testaments seriously. The Church of England was, was just part of the establishment. They were not... They were owning, they owned plantations and they had a lot of money involved. And, you know, so it's really, you start understanding that just because somebody says, like, you know, I'm a Christian and, and you know, these scriptures, it, it tends to be uh, people who are just, you know, these are just normal people. They're just kind of going with the cultural flow. It's, it was just a few people swimming in the other direction, so to speak, who were, uh, you know, the Wesley's people, Whitfield's people, the Quakers absolutely at the top of the list, you know, in the 18th century. Thank you. Yes, over here. Hey, David. Who are the, who are the traffickers today? Well, the traffickers are people who um, own rice mills and rug looms and brick kilns and uh, rubber plantations. Uh, they own brothels. Uh, they tend to be the slave owners, the holders. And then traffickers are those who for pay will go out and recruit them on behalf of these owners of, but, of, of but demo, kind demogra- services and products. Demographically, who are these people? Demographic. Uh, you know what's really interesting? The men tend to be, by and large, the ones who are the owners. Recruiters, a high percentage are women. And they, because they engender trust. So many young uh, people that I interviewed, for, and I interviewed hundreds of, of young women and men and boys, and they uh, and invariably a high percentage were recruited by women. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. Hi, Scott. I actually visited your church in Atlanta quite a bit at Intown. Um, but this question is for David, and you've probably noticed this That's too nice in Atlanta. Good to see you again. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, I just had a question, and Scott, you've probably noticed this a lot just living in Atlanta, maybe other cities like LA, the large um, numbers of illegal aliens. Is there, and I wanted to ask um, David, have you ever any, encountered any camps of thinking that, yes, these workers are getting paid, but they're obviously getting paid less than, if, than legal citizens? Yeah. No, I, I'm glad you raised that question because sometimes people say, well, aren't you talking about low-cost labor, sweatshops, um, you know, unjust wages. Let's just call that whole area unjust wages. And there, I, I really have drawn a line that there are unjust wages today, and that's something that we should all be concerned about as people of justice. But there are slaves, people who are, they are not compensated, or if they're compensated anything at all, it's only to give back to pay for their, the rice I gave you, the place I let you sleep, and you know everything else. You are more in debt because I gave you a little bit of money. Now you owe me, owe me more money. It's a mechanism. It's a tool. So there's no income given to them. The other aspect of that is not only the lack of money, but it's the violence if you try to leave. Those two factors, no compensation, real compensation, and violence if you try and leave. So one day I hope we eradicate slavery, and then you and I need to fight sweatshops. Mm -hmm. Yes, over here. 
Hi. Um, what would a modern-day movement look like tactically? We know that, I mean, as you've said, it's covert. It doesn't look like it did in the late 1700s. Yeah. Um, there's not a piece of paper saying this is property. So what would be the three things that someone yeah. could do, someone who cares tomorrow could do? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a, a very important question. I think it, the first it has to do with, uh, you know, Scott raised the question of demand. And, I, and we talk, that was in the context of, uh, of the sex trade. But there's also a demand probably today with, you know, the tires I drove on in the taxi, the Firestone tires that are being made by slaves in Liberia. The coffee I drank with a little bit of sugar in it and the sugar I had. That is, how do we drive it unknowingly? Uh, a young woman said to me before, uh, she says, you know, I saw, if I see a rug that's really ch cheap, and I said, how could it be so cheap? Mm. Well, that's a good question to raise. But we don't know. We really don't know. We don't know what the supply chain is. And so part of what our movement, our campaign is trying to do is to say we need students all over the country and other researchers to really go dig deep, dig deep down and find out how are these products being made. Now, fortunately, I have a life as a consultant with large companies, and I'm saying to them, watch out. There are a wave of young people who are going out to figure out where you make your products. So I'm kind of like being the good, good guy and the bad guy. You know? So I'm coming to New York in June. I'm meeting with 100 CEOs of the largest companies that make the food stuffs on your shelves and grocery stores and the, and the products that you buy for your transportation, everything you can think of. And I'm saying, this is the next issue, and you better get in front of it. Otherwise, do you want to be, you know, I'll pick IBM. IBM, slaveholder. Mm -hmm. And really, uh, that's what we're trying to do. One is, so it's the economic issue. Mm -hmm. The other is the... Um, is the political issue to really build justice. When we, when we talk about justice, we mean kind of a very fuzzy, yeah, we should all be for justice. But there's economic justice and there's public justice. And there is a lack of public justice in the world today. Justice systems that are effective. And just as we read in the Hebrew prophets, when the poor do not have an advocate who can speak for them before the wealthy and the powerful, they will be taken advantage of. <clears throat> We as young, you know, I'm hoping there will be a generation, I'm calling them Generation J, a generation of justice, that there will be a whole other generation that tries to build effective public justice systems in places of corruption, in places of lack of will. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, I'd say that it's, it's a matter of creating a future, an alternative future. I am making a plea to business people. Mm -hmm. When I went to school, the business people, they didn't have a cause or a mission. They were just after, after filthy lucre. Right? And if you had some kind of conscience, you went into something else. And eventually, I stumbled into, I went to Latin America, it's a long story, but I stumbled into needing to create economic development that was really effective and could replicate itself in villages. And I said, I love this business stuff. In fact, I can use it for a tool to bring good to the world. And that's how I got into business. Frank Woods, I met him in Perth, Australia. He quit his very successful restaurant business so he could go to Cambodia, Phnom Penh, and build a catering business for young girls who have been rescued out of brothels. Mm. We today have a program in Southeast Asia called Dads and Daughters because some families sell their young daughters because they are desperately poor. You can get a loan, a micro loan, if you co-sign it with your daughter. <laughs> Using economic tools mm. to give an alternative future, creating public justice, and stopping the demand. Those are the three things of the campaign. Thank this you. This is probably a Thank good, a good, yeah. yeah.